0: Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, starting at verse 26, that's page 1037 in your church Bibles. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him.
1: Great, next section of Luke. Uh, Before we do jump into our passage this morning, sometimes it's good just to kind of take a pit stop and just remind ourselves where we are in Luke's wider gospel. I think it can be easy, can't it, to read the gospels, um, these kind of historical accounts of Jesus' life, as simply collections of stories um, about Jesus in no particular order, or sometimes we think it happens in chronological order, because that's the way we write these kind of testimonies. We kind of assume that all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of hoped to do was to kind of convince us that Jesus is God through these unrelated miracles, and that he, he died for our sins, and if we view the, the the gospels like that, it's not a huge issue. Uh, they are historical accounts showing who Jesus is and what he's done, but they are so much more than that. The gospel writers ordered their content in sections, and these sections often ask questions of their readers before providing the answers to their questions. So we can't just kind of jump from story to story, assuming they aren't related. You know, last week, what did we do? The calming of the storm. This week, we're doing demon-possessed man. And and, and so, so the question kind of is less, oh, I wonder what the message of this passage is going to be for us this morning. And it's much more, what is Luke doing in this wider section of his gospel? And how does the passage today contribute to that aim that he is trying to set up for us to see? And since the, the beginning of, um, of Luke's gospel, sorry, since the beginning of chapter 8, Luke has ordered his content in such a way as to pose one main question. And the question is this, do you trust God's word? Do you trust God's word. The first passage in chapter 8, you'll see there, they've got subheadings in our Bibles. They didn't have that in the original. The first like, passage was the parable of the sower, 1 to 15. God's word is sown and it produces different responses in people. The next passage, 16 to 18, again, little subheading, um, was, was, was that Jesus' word was like a lamp illuminating our hearts. And through that, he called us to listen carefully to the word. The next one was about jesus' um uh, family, and he said basically it's those who hear god's word and put it into practice are his true family. So do you see the connection He's not just writing three little like stories the, the, the whole he's probing us with this question: Do you trust god's word that's the question he set up, and then having asked that question last week in twenty two to twenty five cute little parable you've got there We we jump between, calming of the storm. It's all to do with what he's doing. What he's doing is he's saying why you can and should trust God's word. So he's framed the question, do you trust God's word? Here's why you should and can trust God's word because we saw in that, didn't we, that Jesus is in control over the whole physical world. And so you can trust Jesus in the storms of your life and uh, because of who he is. And then we reach our passage today, 26 to 39, which far from having its own message, simply builds on the message from last week. Jesus' word is not only authoritative over the physical world, but over Satan and the spiritual world. So we can trust him in the face of demonic opposition. Again, next week, we're going to see that God's word can be trusted. It's so powerful even in the face of death. So that's where we are. That's whole, Luke's whole big thing. Do you trust the word of God? Here's how you, why you should and how you can. And so we're in this bit. That's where, that's where we're landing today. And so when Johnny last week urged us to face life's storms with a greater fear or awe of Jesus and his powerful word... Well, this week, Luke's message is very similar. Likewise, we don't need to fear Satan or his works in our lives because Jesus' word is more powerful. But I I imagine that that might sound somewhere between odd and irrelevant to some of us here. Most of us Don't see demon possession very often, let alone think that Satan is in any way um, involved in our own lives. We might even think that Satan doesn't exist in our world. However, the author C.S. Lewis once famously wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest or obsession, we might say, in them. Now, my guess is that for most of us, we're probably, not all of us, but we're probably going to fall into the first error. We don't live very aware of Satan's work in our life. And yet, the Bible challenges us to think differently about that. It describes Satan as the one who deceives the whole world into not believing in Jesus, Revelation 12. Satan is said to lure people who are interested in Christ away from salvation, 2 Corinthians 11. But even for believers in Jesus, the Bible depicts the Christian life as one of spiritual warfare against our enemy, Satan, Ephesians 6. Huge passage. We looked at it a couple of years ago. Satan is is one who looks for Christians to devour He's like a a prowling lion, 1 Peter 5, and indeed accuses us daily of the guilt and shame that Jesus has removed, Revelation 12. And so Satan's work in the world and in our lives, according to the Bible, is very much a reality. However, Luke's point is this. Do not fear Satan, because Jesus undoes his works and Satan can only submit to his powerful word. So with that in mind, let's keep our Bibles open on page 1039. I thought we might have some older kids in here, so I'm also going to have the, um, the, the words on the screen. So if that helps, then, then great. But um, we're going to be having a look at the story now. And, and kids, by which I mean Joss, if you're listening out for how Jesus' work can be a light and a hammer, a fire and a sword, now's the time to, to listen up. So first of all, Jesus' Jesus's powerful word is a light into darkness. So there in, in verse 26, um, we see that after calming the storm, Jesus sails away from Galilee into the Gerasenes, that's, that's Gentile country, and in verse 27, he meets a demon-possessed man without clothes, without a home. He lives in a tomb, a kind of picture of the spiritual darkness that he, that he is living in, hosting um, a legion of demons, essentially. And yet, verse 28, when he sees Jesus, note the demons declare him to be the Son of God. And after Jesus commands them to come out of the man, verse 28, they say, I beg you, don't torture me. I beg you. They're begging, right? They are submitting to his authority, like someone sleeping in a dark room whose eyes are pierced by the curtains being drawn back, or someone sitting on the back row there with the light piercing your eyes. It's like the demons are squinting in the light of God's command. Mason's like, I know what this feels like right now. <laughs> it's it's piercing because it's darkness, and this light just banishes it. Jesus' word is a light to the darkened soul. And of course, all our souls are dark before seeing the light of Christ. And maybe there are some here today who need to see the light of Christ and submit to his gentle and gracious rule for the first time. But even for seasoned Christians, Satan often works to convince us of how dark life is, how little hope we have despite God's eternal Promises. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying for one minute that mental health struggles are simply the work of Satan. That's not what I'm saying. But for sure, he can and indeed does use that suffering to his advantage, tempting those standing in the light of Christ that there is only darkness. But Jesus' word is more powerful than Satan's. His word pierces the darkness and Satan is forced to beg for Christ's mercy. Let that be a picture to you. Satan begging Jesus. So trust Jesus' word about you. He has overcome Satan's darkness with the glorious light of his word. Jesus' word is a light to you. That's the first thing. Second thing. Jesus' powerful word is, believe it or not, a hammer uh, that, that, that sets us free. So in verse 29, um, we read that um, the, the demon was able to break the chains restraining this man, right? He had physical chains on. The demon is like breaking them open. But this, re- this man's real chains aren't the metal straps around his arms. They're not physical, but they are spiritual chains, aren't they? So, therefore, this man needed someone or something far more powerful than the strength of these demons to truly set him free. Because in one sense, he was free. He didn't have any chains. The chains are broken, but he's clearly not free, is he? He needs something bigger than the demons. And in comes Jesus, and in verse 30, Jesus says, what is your name? And they answer, legion, because they are many. And some of you are like, what does that mean? Legion is just a posh word for many. Okay, so that's why the demon says his name is, is Legion. Now, not only do they answer to Jesus, no, but again, they submit to his authority by begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Their fate is sealed one way or the other. This man is being set free and they know it. Jesus' word is a hammer that breaks the strongest spiritual chains. It is a hammer that crushes Satan's work. Now, Satan still operates in people's lives like we see in this man uh, today. Um, just, just ask, well, go to some parts of the world where this is, this is actually a, a live thing. Uh, we don't see it often in, in our society because, um, well, I think Satan likes to kind of uh, hide himself and convince people he's not there in our society. But even in our society, you speak to George Karwalek, who works um, interviewing people in, in cells, and he will tell you many stories of people behaving like this under, under spiritual darkness, under, the, under, the, um, under spiritual authority, needing, needing freedom from it. But for most of us, Satan does this work of binding us in more subtle ways. He binds us to, to sins to habits, to false gods. They're like addictions in our heart that we may think are only biological or psychological, the product of our past, many of which they are, but which may often involve a very clear spiritual element. Satan binds us up so we don't experience the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Now, if if you are someone who feels chained or addicted or or bound to something or someone that pulls you away from Christ, there is no easy fix. These are are pastoral things that require a lot of care and time and attention. But Luke reminds us here that it is Jesus' powerful word about you that will set you free. Not Satan's word about how rubbish a Christian you are, or how you'll never experience freedom from greed or porn or self-interest or whatever the sin might be, or whatever it is. He says, trust Jesus' word. He says, that by your trust in his blood, your sins, your idols and addictions, have been born in his body, on the cross. And you are loved, and now set free to serve him. Jesus' word, is a hammer, that breaks our chains, and sets us free. Thirdly, Jesus' word is a fire which cleanses. So in verse 32 there, uh, there's this herd of pigs, which again, note, the demons beg. You're getting the sense there. Whenever you're reading the Bible and, and one of the gospel writers or Bible writers uses the word repeatedly, you know they're onto something and you're to be focusing your attention there. That's three times now the demons beg Jesus um, to be cast into this herd of pigs instead of uh, just simply being cast out. And verse 32, Jesus' notes gives permission. Who's the, who's the one in authority here? He gives them permission to enter the pigs, and then they are led down the, um, the cliff to their death. Um, I'm not going to say anything about animal welfare in case you were hoping me to do so. If you want to speak about animal welfare, which a lot of Christians raise at this point, speak to me afterwards. I'll have a long conversation with you about it, or maybe five minutes, whatever you're up for. But essentially, here is a picture of what life without Christ in Satan's grasp leads us to. Physical death, yes, but primarily spiritual death. They are drowned. But this episode with the pigs actually reminds us of something different and actually... Something more important, which we won't notice as non-Jewish Westerners. Because in God's Old Testament law, pigs were to be avoided because they were unclean. Okay, and that meant that contact with pigs made someone unclean. Not just muddy, like we would think about it, but unclean in the sense that not able to approach God, ceremonially unclean. And they, were, they, they went through rituals to, to make them clean so they could then again um, approach God. So don't miss what's going on here by the proximity to pigs. Jesus has specifically come across the sea from Israel, from Galilee, that is God's people in God's place, into Gentile country to seek out so called unclean people, this demon possessed man being one. And he cleanses them with a word. Jesus' word is a powerful fire which cleanses us, which refines us from all uncleanness, from all stains left by sin. I don't need a show of hands, but how many of us here feel dirty from past sins, of our own or sins done to us? How many experience the burden of guilt each day? How many bury those things deep down pretending that they are no longer have any hold on us but nevertheless quietly wage war against our sullied souls? You see, Satan brings these accusations before Christians daily, Revelation chapter 12, and he convinces us that we cannot approach God because we are unclean. But just as he did to this man, Jesus purposefully seeks out people, not the clean, but the dirty, not the proud, but the shame, not the pure, but the stained, and his word is a powerful fire which cleanses us. By his blood, he won for us the forgiveness of sins and freedom from any guilt which those past or present sins done by us or done to us, the accusation comes before us. He has dealt with that. He's cleaned us. Jesus' powerful words to you this morning is a cleansing fire. Listen to him. Listen to him. Satan's accusations of your guilt, submit to Jesus' authoritative declaration that you are clean. So finally, Jesus' word. Is a sword that heals. So in verses 34 to 37, essentially what you've got is Jesus' previous parable of the sower being played out in front of like is, is, is being like it's in action, I guess. So plenty of people had heard, or at least had heard, reports of um, Jesus' powerful word restoring this man. The word, so to speak, had been sown, and yet note this these people who'd seen and heard Jesus' powerful word did not submit to him. They are the only people in this story who did not, quote, beg Jesus to do anything for him. Again, the importance of words. They're did not. They're the only ones who did not beg. Instead, verse 37, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave. You can always sense their belief that he should submit to them despite themselves being scared. They didn't beg him, they asked him. As Jesus predicted in the parable of the sower, many who hear the word will not come. And yet, what about the once demon-possessed man? What's, What's he now doing? Verse 35, he is, quote, sitting At Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. So God's word is sown. Sorry, I'm having trouble with this. God's word is sown. And while some don't come, others do and sit at Jesus' feet. A sign of humble obedience. Not only that, this man is now dressed. Remember, he had no clothes on. He's now dressed. A picture of Christ's perfect righteousness with which he clothes all of us. Come to him. But what is more, verse 35 he is in his right mind. Jesus' word is a powerful sword, not to destroy, but like a doctor's scalpel to bring healing to this man's life. It's not as if his life is now totally sorted, but in some manner of speaking, he has, he has been returned to what great God created him for a life of sitting at the feet of the master, seeing, thinking, and living aright. I don't know, perhaps you feel that your life is so out of control. We've already mentioned mental health struggles. It might be difficult circumstances. It might be physical ailments. Whatever it is, following Jesus doesn't make life all okay. But sitting at Jesus' feet is the only way navigate this painful life with the joy of the Lord's salvation. It's so tempting when life feels crushing to keep Jesus at arm's length. But Luke is really, really clear here, isn't he, that Jesus' powerful word is not only the light in our darkness or the hammer to break our chains, it's not only the fire which cleanses us, it's the sword that cuts away all the disease and sinful unhealth that we all languish under, broken, as it gets to work to correct us, to return us, if you like, to our right mind. A mind which wants nothing else than to sit at the feet of Jesus. Well, as we close, because I'm aware there are a few parents in the room who are kind of wishing I'd just get on with it. Um, I said a minute ago, didn't I, that all players in this account except the crowd begged Jesus to do something for them. And perhaps you're, you're, you're thinking, well, what, what about the guy who's just been restored? Well, look at verse 38. It's on the screen. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus. There it is again. Here is a man so in awe of his Saviour that even when Jesus had to go back to Galilee, he wanted to be near him, at his feet, under the power of his word. Elsewhere, Jesus says that it's good for him to, to go back to Galilee or even to return to his Father because in his place, he is going to give us his Holy Spirit which, who can live simultaneously in all the lives of his people. And he, the Holy Spirit, will lead us to God's Word. He will help us to understand it and will will increasingly use it to restore us to our right minds, our corrected hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, this is true for you this morning, and this is where we're going to end. Satan is doing his level best to stop you listening. That is what he is doing. He's stopping you listening not just to me but to, to not like you're zoning out but to the word of god in your life whether that's through whispering accusations in your your ear that you're too sinful or luring you away from spending time in god's word through tiredness or laziness or some belief that the bible can't be understood at face value and everyone just has their own opinions about it satan is at work And whatever it may be, Jesus' word speaks the truth over and above Satan's lies. His word brings light into Satan's darkness. By his hammer-like word, he's broken your chains and set you free to serve a new master. By his fire-like word, he says to you this morning, your sins are forgiven and you are clean. By his sword-like word, he is in the process of transforming and healing your life into what you were created for. This isn't on the screen, but look at your Bible at chapter 8, verse 18, if you've still got it open. Don't worry if you haven't. This is how it all connects together. Verse 18 of chapter 8, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Consider carefully how you listen. Do not be afraid of Satan's work under your faith. Do not believe his lies about you, your life and the world that he's tempting you to believe. Come and sit at Jesus' feet and listen carefully to the glorious grace that Jesus has spoken and continues to speak over your lives, all those who come to him. And if we do, surely like this man, we will go and tell all over the town how much Jesus has done for us. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that whilst we have an enemy in this world, whilst um, our culture tells us that he's not real and that it's, it's all make-believe, Lord, for the seasoned Christian, we know that Satan's work in our life is real. And we pray, Father, for those who maybe are un- more unaware of, their, of Satan's work or even if they are painfully aware of his work, Lord, that we would understand that your word is more powerful than his Lord, that your word is more authoritative than his, and what you have said about us in the gospel, in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the truth, and cannot be undone by demons and Satan who beg you, Lord Jesus, for permission to do anything. We praise you this morning for your authority and your love and your compassion your grace. In your name, amen.